Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 22, Revelation Introduction Part 2. In our last podcast, we addressed the standard who, what, where, when, and why this book was written. And with this background, we were introduced to the literal approach to figurative language that we must adopt to properly understand Revelation. John was taken up into heaven, and he was in the Spirit. Thus, he is able to see things from a heavenly perspective, from the view of the Spirit, not the view of the physical or the earthly. And this perspective is to be our starting point. This means that all things are identified and described as they exist in the unseen realm and how they are seen in the unseen realm. The information gets transmitted by God through the angelic, and then it unfolds in the physical or has its impact on the physical realms. Therefore, we cannot take a ground-up approach from the earthly to the heavenly. Rather, we must take a top-down approach from the heavenly into the physical realms. Days, months, and time, times, and half a time. With that said, as our baseline approach, we begin to touch on the way the Spirit loves numbers, and apparently He loves riddles. Thus, he utilizes three perfect descriptions of time, each of which adds up to the same number, three and a half years, utilizing the Jewish calendar of 360 days. He speaks of 1,260 days, 42 months, and times, times, and half a times. He also utilizes 1,290 days, counting from the abomination of desolation, and 1,335 days, counting from the beginning of testimony the overlap of which is three and a half months. But are these to be taken literally or figuratively or both? The mysterious and merciful prophetic number three and a half. There is something quite mysterious about three and a half years or months. Being half of seven, the number indicating completeness, it seems to indicate a time of mercy through a special sort of trial or testing that is cut in half of what it otherwise would be. After all, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect or chosen, those days will be cut short. In God's province, mercy and judgment are intertwined and are surprisingly to be understood synonymously as his judgment is intended to help people avoid his wrath. In effect, The Spirit communicates that in judgment, he will have mercy on Zion and pity her. So Yahweh's frame will be celebrated in Zion. Thus he declares, my mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nation and distant lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. It should not surprise us then that all these end times events are contained within this mysterious period of three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, and times, times, and half a time. And we must not ignore the little hidden jewel of mercy in judgment, which is found in time expresses a difference between 
1,290 and 1,350 days, leaving three and a half months. Let us consider these numbers within the timeline of grace and the timeline of judgment. We will start with an overarching image of what I call the time of grace and then dive down into the time of mercy in judgment. Time of grace. The time of grace was first introduced to us in the life of Abraham, where he was counted righteous simply by believing, by betting his life on things God has promised him. This is the first instance where we understand God to ascribe righteousness to a man just for believing. And we are sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise of grace, if we belong to Christ. And from the time of Abraham, people have always only been saved by grace through faith not as a result of anyone's works. It is a gift of God so that no man may boast. This time of grace, however, will come to a conclusion with the rapture of the church when God calls his bondservants home, those in the grave and those who are alive. As to the time of grace, there were 42 periods of time or 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, approximately 2,050 years, give or take. And we are currently venturing on that same time period of 42 periods of time or generations, as it has been over 2,000 years since Jesus' days on earth. Perhaps the 42 months, or three and a half figurative years, before Jesus came to the earth, and the 42 months, three and a half figurative years after Jesus came to the earth, speak of a bigger picture of seven figurative years to complete the prophetic timeline of grace. It is also critical to note that Jesus ministered on this earth for 42 months, approximately three and a half years, during a time of grace, upon grace, which overlapped these two epochs or periods of 42 months. The figurative seven years, comprised of two halves, each figuratively three and a half years, sets up for us a type or a model of what we can expect in the end times. I would suggest that if this typology regarding the time of grace is true, then we would see a similar picture of literal years, months, and days, which define the end times. In other words, the timeline of the end times is a microcosm, a small-scale version of the timeline of grace. Time of mercy in judgment. In like manner, in the end times, there will be three and a half years, literal years, remaining of the time of grace. And then there will occur three and a half years, literal years, which will be the time of mercy and judgment, with a literal three and a half month overlap between the two periods for the ministry of the witness, the bondservants of Yahweh, who will be dramatically slaughtered, just like Jesus, who is led like a lamb to the slaughter at the end of his three and a half year ministry. I have included various illustrations to help you get the picture, literally. You can download the transcript with the illustrations as well as the footnotes and references for all podcasts at threshermediagroup.com. Both figurative and literal expressions of time. As we go through the text of Revelation, this mysterious division of time into three and a half figurative and literal time periods will become apparent. But to give you a preview and to support this supposition, I will give you a few examples. We are told that the outer court of the temple has been given to the nations, or literally, to the peoples. This is a term that functions as a synonym or code for the Gentiles, which is a Jewish way of thinking 
It's a euphemism or code for unbelievers, Gentiles, as opposed to believers, Jews. That is how they thought. We see this same use of the code played out in the New Testament when the Spirit connects the idea of Israel, not to those of Jewish lineage or to those who come from Abraham, but to all true believers, those who are children of the promise. The Israel of God are those who share in the new creation, whether they have been circumcised or or not. In fact, the Spirit is very specific that his view of Israel includes the fullness of the Gentiles and the remnant of Jews who believe by faith alone, according to God's gracious choice. Moreover, the area being addressed in the temple that is turned over to the nations does not refer to the temple at large, but specifically to the territory outside of the sanctuary or outside of the holy place. Only the priests were allowed to enter the holy place. It was set aside for them alone, whereas others were allowed access, albeit somewhat restricted, to the rest of the temple grounds. Then we are told that they, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, will tread the holy city for 42 months which is an expression of the mysterious three and a half years. We'll also discover that the holy city is code for the true temple of God, represented by the collective of true believers, the bondservants of Jesus Christ, who dwell in the holy place. They are also subsequently pictured as the new Jerusalem. What does this mean? From the time of the Roman occupation through today, the holy city or the bondservants of Jesus Christ, have been trodden upon by the, quote, Gentiles, or the unbelievers, as they, the unbelievers, have occupied the temple grounds outside of the sanctuary, outside of the holy place. In other words, the persecution of true believers, those who abide in the sanctuary as priests of God, has come at the hands of those occupying the outer temple, which is a symbol for all those in the religion of Christianity as well as Judaism. Just as Jesus explained, those who persecute and kill his bondservants will believe, they'll legitimately believe that they are offering a service for God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father nor the Son. For the past 2,000 plus years, true believers, the bondservants of Jesus Christ, have been persecuted in every country in the world. And this will continue with a vengeance in the end times as the events culminate in nothing short of a literal slaughter of true believers. So these 42 months would seem to overlay the period of time from Jesus' departure from earth up to the current days. Hence, we can be sure that these 42 months of which the Gentiles tread upon the court of the temple has a figurative application. Furthermore, given what we will read about the famed two witnesses, regarding both their mystery and their spectacular death, these 42 months will have a literal application occurring during a three and a half month period that overlaps both the first and the second three and a half year segments of the tribulation. These two witnesses are granted authority to prophesy for 1,260 days during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And when their testimony is complete, They are killed by the beast, yet we are told that the person is blessed who keeps waiting and remains until the end of 1,335 days, a difference of 105 days or three and a half months based on a 360-day-a-year Jewish 
calendar. I know that is confusing, but let me try again. These two witnesses will be present during the first half of the tribulation and for a short time in the second half of the tribulation. There will be a time bridge of three and a half months that lays over both the first and the second half of the tribulation. And at the end of the three and a half month time bridge, they will be killed. Similarly, the beast, the demonic spirit that ascends from the abyss, is given authority to act for 42 months, the second period of three and a half years in the tribulation. And we know from the Apostle John that the Antichrist, who is even now coming, is even now active in the world, it's in the present tense, and has been active every moment of the now since John's time. Therefore, these 42 months must speak figuratively of the generations of time during which the beast exercises his authority from within the abyss, and literally to the time he is granted to exercise his global authority in the end times. Moreover, in Daniel, we are told that from the time the true believers are slaughtered, there will be time, times, and half a times. Thus, the 42 months in which the beast is given authority to act will be a literal time, because we know his demise does not come until the end of the second or final three-and-a-half-year period when the time of wrath is completed, when Jesus comes again. Over and over, the Spirit will reveal both the figurative and a literal application of time, even when talking about a singular event. Remember, the cake layers. Both can be true all at the same time. We will carefully follow the code through its use of the key verb tenses, and this will be our clue to track the figurative and literal application of time. Fiction alert! Fiction alert! The Tribulation the Great Tribulation, and Wrath. As I mentioned previously, fictions run amok when it comes to the end times, such that it is ridiculously hard to shift our mind and emotion from some of these fancy tales that have been repeated so many times that far too many people now take them as fact when they are mere fiction and fabrications. Much of the confusion regarding the end times has flowed from the varying positions on the rapture of the church, specifically when it occurs. The rapture itself refers to a time when Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And this issue of the rapture, again, specifically when it occurs, is at the center of what drives much of the related fiction. And one finds that the positional arguments supporting this fiction tend to be either an emotional manipulation of Scripture, a downright twisting of Scripture, or both. Depending upon the faction, these fictions are likely driven by one or more of the following. 1. A lack of understanding of the code. 2. An unwillingness to use or the inconsistent use of the code. 3. A follower mentality, not wanting to buck the flow of the majority. And four, a dishonest positional manipulation to serve one's instinctual religious wisdom. But whatever the reasons, there is clearly a lot of demonic deception in play, as many learned students and well-known Bible teachers blatantly compromise the code to support their positional view on the timing of the rapture. By way of example, the Codex states that God has not appointed his bondservants to wrath. And being in the indicative mood, we know it is a statement of fact, something upon which we can rely. In the same way, 
Jesus told his bondservants that he will rescue them from the wrath to come. This begs the question, what does the Spirit mean by wrath? Almost universally, at least in Western Christianity, teachers summarily conclude that because a lot of bad things happened during the end times, the entire time, both periods of three and a half years, must be wrath. And so they pronounce to everyone that the rapture must occur before the end times because we are not appointed to wrath. And everybody stands and shouts, Hallelujah! Others will suffer, but not me. The problem, however, is that according to the Codex, wrath is a defined term. This means that we do not get to choose its definition, as the Codex is extremely specific about this time and when it occurs. To the surprise of many, the time of wrath does not apply to the entire end time events, but is found occurring within the last three and a half year period during the time of mercy in judgment. Tribulation. You might have noticed that I have refrained from using the word tribulation as a general reference to the entire end times events. So far, this has been purposeful as the generic use of this word as it is propagated within Christian pop culture contributes to the confusion around the timing and definition of defined terms like the time of wrath or the great tribulation. Fiction alert, fiction alert. The seven-year tribulation is never used as a standalone phrase to describe the two three-and-a-half-year periods of the end times. It might shock you to find that there is no mention of a seven-year tribulation anywhere in the Codex, but only of two time periods, each of which comprise three-and-a-half years. You might be thinking I'm being overly picky by not just saying the seven-year tribulation. But the events of each period of three and a half years are awfully specific, and the Spirit divided the events of the end times into two distinct periods of time for a reason, to avoid the confusion and fictions which are caused by generic terms, like equating the time of wrath with the tribulation at large. Let us examine this dynamic. There are 16 references in the New Testament to tribulation, five of which are in Revelation. Ten of the 16 references including three in Revelation, are about personal suffering. In other words, the tribulation which true believers must endure as part of living in this world. For example, the Spirit exhorts us to exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. We are to rejoice in hope, preserving in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And tribulation is assured for the believer, as Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The important thing to note is that there is no time reference in any of these 10 passages that would tie personal suffering exclusively to either of the three and a half year periods of time of the tribulation. Rather, tribulation is a result of being in the world. Accordingly, John tells us not to be surprised if the world hates us. Great Tribulation The remaining sex references are specifically addressing a time which Jesus refers to as Great Tribulation, which we will find is a defined term, the Great Tribulation. Hence, the generic term tribulation does not equal Great Tribulation. These are not synonymous phrases. Therefore, despite modern end times folklore, the tribulation, as it is understood in modern culture, does not equal the Great Tribulation. The Codex gives us the definition of the Great Tribulation and a time marker for its occurrence, so we do not confuse it with any other time 
or any other event in the Bible. And the key marker is the Great Tribulation does not occur until after an event called the Abomination of Desolation. From within the midst of a terrible persecution of God's people during that three-and-a-half-month bridge period, there will be a sign, the Abomination of Desolation. Then there will come a Great Tribulation, a time such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The Great Tribulation is literally incomparable to anything the world has ever seen or ever will see. The Codex makes a multitude of references to this incomparable time, but uses different titles or expressions. However, to make sure we know that the Spirit is talking synonymously about only one event, each reference is tagged with a phrase that similarly marks it as an unparalleled event in human history, something never before occurring and never to be repeated. It is this definition that makes the time of the Great Tribulation a defined term, since by definition, there can only be one such time. These alternative titles or expressions for the Great Tribulation are as follows. Day of the Lord's Great Wrath. Time of Indignation. The Day of the Lord. The Day of Our Lord. The Time of Jacob's Trouble or Distress. The Day of the East Wind. The Day of God. Or simply, in that day. Again, these are all synonymous terms with the connecting point being the unparalleled level of terror described, something which has never occurred before nor ever will again. So these titles are simply different ways of expressing the same event. A few other descriptions of this time of terror are destruction from the Almighty, the great day of the Lord and the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord's wrath, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry, a day of darkness instead of light, a time of doom for the nations, cruel with a fury and burning anger. And if that does not sound terrible enough, let us get even a more precise view of this figurative day, the time of great tribulation. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2 through 3. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. Zephaniah 1, 17 through 18. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, and he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Jeremiah 30, verse 6 through 7. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Isaiah 24, 1-6 Behold, Yahweh lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, and the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, and the lender like the borrower 
the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Isaiah 24, 17-23 Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitants of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that Yahweh will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again. After it, to the years of many generations. At that time, Michael the archangel, who stands over your nation, will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish, greater than any since nations first came into existence. The day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Accordingly, it is not accurate to refer to the entire end times, the two three and a half year periods, as the Great Tribulation. Thus, the generic reference to the Tribulation is not the same as the Great Tribulation. They are not synonymous. The tribulation can refer to the entire seven years, comprised of the two three-and-a-half-year periods, but not to the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is a defined term marked by the finality of this world and the death of those who now and continually make their abode in this world. It's an event unparalleled in human history, and it does not occur until after the abomination of desolation which we will find occurs during the middle of the two three-and-a-half-year periods of time. Well, let's stop here, and we will pick up with this topic and dive into an understanding of the time of the Lord's wrath in our next podcast. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T. H R E S H E R Media Group.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.